0: Well, good morning, Bridge family. It's so good to see you this morning. To those of you in Columbia, good morning to you as well. And man, it is just an honor to be able to lead you in our time in the Word today. My name's Chris. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you came anticipating Pastor Josh being here, he's on a vacation this week. He'll be back next week. And can I just tell you, no one's more excited that he'll be back next week than I am. And so come back next week and uh, he'll lead us in our time in the Word. But for today, it's my honor to be able to do that. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it open to Romans 3. 3. That's where we're going to take a look in just a minute. Romans chapter 3. And uh, while you're turning there, let me just remind you sort of where we are. Uh, we're in a series uh, for, the, for the we're like week two of a series that's three weeks long that we're just calling uh, calling Threeology. And uh, the idea is we're taking three theological concepts and uh, just unpacking them. Three things that we really think it's important for every Christian to know and understand. And we're just explaining what those things are. And maybe you're here and you're just going, man, I don't even even really care a whole lot about theology. Like, that's just not my thing. But can I just tell you that we're all theologians in some way, right? Um, A.W. Tozer, a great theologian from years past, he said this. He said, um, the, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And when you think about God, you are being a theologian, all right? And so the question is, are you a good theologian or a bad theologian? This series is all about helping all of us be good theologians. And uh, and we're kind of thinking about this series. Church growth experts have said, uh, you know, hey, man, this generation is just really not interested in those kind of heavy, sort of more cognitive theological concepts. But, But I just want to say to you that if you can order a venti iced caramel no whip macchiato, right? Uh, You can understand theological concepts. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, By the way, if you're a grown man and you're ordering one of those things, stop right now. Stop. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. There we go. So uh, Romans chapter three, that's where we're going to look. Martin Luther described the word that we're going to talk about today as the key word Point of the Bible, he thought it had major implications for our life, and the word is maybe a word that you've never heard before. The word is propitiation. All right, Uh, we're going to come to it in just a bit. What the text is going to do is it's going to kind of set it up for us, sort of sort of set the ball on the tee, and then toward the end of the text. It's going to hit it off of the T for us, and so it'll take us a minute to get to the definition of propitiation, but when we get there, I think it's going to have major implications in your life, all right? So here we go, Romans chapter 3, and uh, let's go ahead and start reading there. Uh, What then, Paul says, verse 9, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are, this is really important, we're going to come back to this in just a second, under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Welcome to church this morning, all right? Um, so what Paul does throughout the book of Romans, really all throughout, but especially the first three chapters of the book of Romans, is he kind of goes all like opposite of seeker-friendly and just basically tells us how black-hearted, wretched sinners that we all are, right? And so that's what he does here. When he gets to Romans chapter three, especially the second half of Romans chapter three, he really sort of zones in on that and summarizes that idea. And that's what he's doing right here. Um, and when he says the word un- under sin, basically that is his summary statement of what sin is in our lives and how sin affects our lives. So let's talk about what that phrase means. Uh, In the original language, that phrase under sin is the word hupotasso. Hupotasos, the Greek word. Um, that word is a military term that literally means to be positioned under. Okay, Now, here's how that word was used in that day. It was used to describe something or someone who was under the control of something else, right? And so to be hupotasso, to be under something is to be under the control of that thing, not just affected by that thing, but to be dominated by that thing, to be under the control of that thing. Uh, and so just let me, let me give you an illustration to help you understand sort of what that looks like in our lives. All right. Uh, several years ago, I went on a trip with my wife to West Africa and um, we had some friends who were missionaries there. And so we flew into uh, Mali in West Africa and then we drove over to the little country called Guinea. And we spent some time there and it was really amazing. But the longest leg of that flight was the flight from the United States to Paris. And then we flew down to West Africa. And on that long flight, it was about 12 hours long. And, um, so we were, we were, you know, nervously anticipating that flight from the U.S. to Paris. And, uh, and I had had some back issues. I'd done something to throw my back out. And so you just call, you know, it's just nagging, just aggravating. But I was really afraid that on that long flight that it would get, get really aggravated and bother me and just be in pain and be miserable. And so I had my doctor prescribe me some muscle relaxers. And so, uh, while we're sitting in the airport waiting. aboard that flight, uh, I took a muscle relaxer and I felt pretty good. Get on the flight, you know, and my mind's a a lot of different places. And uh, what I didn't know is that my wife was also not really excited about the flight, but she was not really excited because she thought she would be bored for 12 hours. And so she wanted to sleep. And so she had the doctor prescribe her some Ambien, which is a sleep aid. All right. So when I get on the plane, she's taking her Ambien, you know, got her water there. And she said, hey, you want an Ambien to help you sleep on the flight? And I had forgotten that I'd taken a muscle relaxer. All right. And so I chased the muscle relaxer with an Ambien Uh, for all, before we even pushed back from the gate. Why why are you laughing at that? It was a bad experience. Uh, Before we even pushed back from the gate, like I was out. Don't remember anything about that flight. They just had to pass the meals on, you know, by me. I didn't take the drink service. Like I was out for 12 hours. When we landed in Paris, pull up to the gate, you know, the little thing dings, if you ever been on a flight, ding, you know, everybody stands up and, uh, and starts, you know, deplaning and our whole group, there's maybe 10 of us there and they're, they're getting off the plane. And, uh, and I was totally out, like totally, my wife's like shaking me, get up, get up. I couldn't get up. This is a picture that someone else who was on that flight with us took of me when we landed in Paris. This is it right here. That's it right there. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty embarrassing, and uh, it hit me so hard, I didn't even have time to take my hat off, and I stayed like that for 12 hours. Literally, my wife drugged me off of the plane, and I'm, you know, and there's a picture like when we were in the airport in Paris, and I'm all like so groggy, you know, can't keep my, my eyes open, and it was so embarrassing that I didn't even want to show you that one, all right? So this is the only one you get. It was terrible. It was terrible. As hard as I tried, like I knew I needed, I was, I was cognitive enough that I knew I needed to get off of the plane. But I I wasn't really, no no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't force myself to do it. You know what I mean? And so she's kind of dragging me and I'm trying to pull myself out of it. And I just can't because it had made its way. The ambient muscle relaxer chaser had made its way into my bloodstream and it was controlling every part of me. Do You see that? And and in this text, when Paul says we are hupatasso under sin, we are under sin. That's what he's saying. He's saying sin is not just something that, you know, are just mistakes that we make, that if we just kind of can, you know, muster up enough energy to make better decisions, then we can pull ourselves out of it. No, he's saying we're hupotasso. We are completely controlled by it. There is nothing we can do to pull ourselves out of the situation of sin that we find ourselves in. So it was used to describe, that word was used to describe how people are controlled by something. It was also used to describe uh, the slave-master relationship, right? Slaves were hupatasso their masters, right? They were under their masters. They were enslaved by, in control, uh, they, they were controlled by their masters. And so what Paul is saying is sin controls you. It, it puts you in chains. It makes you enslaved. It's not just some mistakes that you make. And by the way, that's why you keep going back to that pornography that you said you'd never go back to again. Right? And you just think, man, I, can, I I'll just need to stop. But that's why you can't stop. You keep going back to it because you're not just a mistaker. You are a sinner controlled by sin. Hupotasso sin, right? Do you see that picture? That's why you keep going back to the the, the gossip or the lying or the whatever the blank is. That's why you keep going back and drinking from that well because you are hupotasso sin. Now, if you grew up in a religious system like I did, kind of a religious uh, legalistic church, the gospel that was taught in the church that I grew up was kind of like this. God is good. You are bad. Try harder. See you next week. Like That was the thing, right? And so, so I just kind of thought like when it, I know that I'm a sinner, like I know it, but like if I can just somehow muster up enough energy to, to make better decisions, if I can somehow be scared like literally by the pastor, have the hell scared out of me, right? And so that I can make better decisions and be more motivated that week, then somehow I can pull myself out of that sin. Um, one of my favorite Bible teachers calls that beach ball theology. He talks about uh, on this concept we're talking about, being under sin. And he says that when we try to sort of control and manage our sin by just sort of mustering up enough uh, inherent goodness to make ourselves better, you know, uh, he said, it's kind of like holding a beach ball under the water. You ever tried to do that at the pool, you know, playing with your kids and you're all greased up with sunscreen or whatever. And you try to hold that, you know, like play the game where it's like an explosion and you hold it under and watch out three, two, one and the beach ball, you know, like you can hold it under the water for a little while. But then, after a while, the pressure starts to build, right? And all of a sudden, because you're greasy, whoo, it pops up out of the water at 100 miles an hour, right? Beach ball. That's that's beach ball theology. Thinking that we can somehow manage the sin in our lives, we may do it for a little while. We may be able to, you know, turn the pornography off a little while and do enough for a little while. But over time, that beach ball is going to pop back up. And what this text is going to do for us is it's going to show us how Jesus comes along and pops the beach ball and says, you can't do that by yourself. That's what Paul's trying to show us when he says we are Hupatasso, we are under sin. Basically, he's saying we're not simply mistakers in need of motivation. We are sinners. All of Romans chapters 1 through 3, we are wretched, black-hearted sinners in need of a savior. That's our need. And so then he goes on in this text, and uh, verse 21, here's what he says. There it is. He says, but now. One theologian said those were the most powerful, most beautiful words in the entire Bible. So Paul's painted this picture of our sinfulness. And then he says, but now. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all. And if you've been around church, you know this verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, that's a great verse, several verses to really understand it. We have to understand the word redemption. Redemption. That's a really important word in the Bible that's used all throughout the Bible, and it had its start in an Old Testament kind of culture. You see, in the Old Testament, uh, there were no bankruptcy laws in that day, right? And so if you owed more than you could pay, what would happen is you would end up being hupotasso to the person that you owed the debt to. You would be enslaved by that person under the control of that person. Until you could somehow, uh, you know, make enough money or work your way out of the thing, out, out of the debt that you owed, right? But what's amazing about that word redemption is that it really comes from this idea in the Book of Leviticus, where the law made a way for someone who was not the person who was enslaved. Uh, and who owed the debt for someone to come along and make a payment for that person to redeem that person. Actually, literally in the Bible, that person is called a redeemer. If you've been around church or Sunday school, you Bible scholars who know, sometimes it's called a kinsman redeemer. The word in the original language is goel, right? And so, so the Bible made a way for if you were in debt to have a goel, a redeemer, pay the price for you that you couldn't pay yourself. Now, here's what's amazing about that idea. You see that in, uh, in, in, in um, the story of, of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz being her kinsman redeemer. But, but the idea of that, um, that redeemer thing is this, that it had to be a person who was a relative. Couldn't just be a random person? It had to be a person who was a relative, who was, who was in some ways, not in all ways, but in some ways like you right? It had to be a person who is a relative, but it also had to be a person who was not acting out of compulsion, rather acting out of love. And if there was someone who was in some way like you, a relative of you, who could act out of love and take on the cost themselves for the debt that you owed, they could then buy back your freedom. And what Paul is saying here is that we are all owing a debt that we can't pay. And we're in need of someone to buy back our freedom. And this text paints the picture that the beauty of the gospel is we have in Jesus, a Goel, a redeemer who comes along and pays the debt for us and buys for us our freedom. Do you see that? And so this is where propitiation comes in. So how does he buy back our freedom? He does it through propitiation. Check it out. Whom God, Jesus is the whom here. Okay, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. the The word for propitiation in, in the original language is the word um, halastrium, and the word halastrium literally means a payment that satisfies, and it satisfies in a way that turns away wrath and anger. And what the Bible is saying is that God himself, through Jesus, is paying the debt that needs to be paid uh, to to satisfy the wrath of God. And so people have said, well, man, um, you know, why can't God just pronounce people righteous? Why does there have to be wrath involved in this whole thing? Why Why does there have to be like the judgment of God? Why can't God just, if he's good, just, you know, just say that we're free? Well, here's why. And let me tell you in an illustration. Imagine you're a family of five, okay, and imagine you walk home, or you you go, not walk home. You go home today, and you walk in the door. And when you walk in the door, everybody in your family, you're expecting them to greet you with smiles, and the dog runs up, wagging its tail, and greets you, and everybody, hey, hey, you know, comes up. And uh, imagine you walk in though, and instead of that, what you get is you see your entire family in the room slaughtered. Imagine that's what you see. And and you're you're just mortified, and you look over, and what you see is the person who actually committed the crime still standing there, weapon in hand. There's no doubt that he committed that crime, right? And somehow you're able to muster up uh, enough energy to sort of go over there and wrangle that person and tie him down and hold him down or whatever until law enforcement gets there. So law enforcement gets there, arrests that person, and then that person stands before the judge, And when that person stands before the judge, imagine that he's standing there before the judge and the the evidence is overwhelming. We have an eyewitness who literally saw that person standing there with weapon in hand in front of the people who were killed. And the judge says to that person, instead of slamming the gavel down and saying guilty, what the judge does is the judge says, you know, man, he, I'm just a, I'm a good judge. he didn't mean it. Like he, he was just, you know, he just made a bad decision in that time. Like he didn't mean to. So, so I'm just going to let him go. Right. What would you think in that moment? Like you're feeling the emotion of having lost your family. This is the person who committed that crime and is standing right here. And the judge says, we're, you know, let's just let him go. You would be mortified. You'd be livid. You wouldn't be able to control yourself. And in that moment, you would scream out, justice has not been served. And you would think in your mind, you would think the person who's on the stand is actually more evil than the person who committed the crime. How could you let this atrocity, this abomination go free? Are you serious? How? Right? A good judge must rightfully and justfully judge Wrongs that are done, right, and so God is a good judge, and he must judge he must deal justly with sin, but god 's also a loving judge, and he 's a loving God, and so you think, man, okay, so then how how do the, how does the love of God and the wrath the wrath of God coexist like how can God be loving and wrathful? all at the same time. That doesn't make any sense to me. And to ask that question, to draw a distinction between those two things reveals that you don't understand how the heart works. Wrath and love are not mutually exclusive. Where there is one, there will always be the other. That's the way the heart works, right? Let me show you what I mean by that. This is my family right here. Uh, That's my oldest son, Connor. This is Vanessa, my wife, That's Emma, my daughter. She's 13 now. That's Brady. He's 10. And uh, I love my family. These people right here are the love of my life, right? Now, uh, I'm a pretty nice guy. Like, I'm not an inherently wrathful person, okay? Hopefully you guys know that I'm not an inherently wrathful person. But I love my family deeply. And as soon as someone starts to mess with my girls or my boys, the wrath of Chris will come out, right? I I will gladly lose my job here at the bridge and begin a prison ministry to defend my family, okay? (laughs) Here's the deal. What that reveals is this. Love and wrath are not mutually exclusive. It's because I love them so much that I'm willing to be wrathful for the things that might hurt them. Do you see that, right? And so God's wrath because of sin are actually, it actually reveals God's love for us because it's our sin that, that breaks us and that controls us and it puts us in prison and puts us in chains and makes us slaves, right? God is so loving that he has to be wrathful for the things that break the things he loves. Do you see that? So God is a good judge. God is a loving judge. He's a loving God. And because he's a loving God, he's a wrathful God. But what this says is, what this text is pointing us to, propitiation says, is that though a payment must be paid, or really because a payment must be paid to satisfy the loving wrath of God, that Jesus comes along as a propitiation, a payment that satisfies and absorbs the wrath of God that we can't absorb ourselves. He absorbs the penalty of the payment of sin that we owe and cannot pay. You see that? Um, A few years ago, I read this article or I heard about an article uh, that was in the LA Times and it was about a city just north of LA where it was known to kind of be a, a speed trap area. And it was really unique. In, in that particular city, as the, as the article in the story goes, uh, they, they actually would not just give you a citation and then send you to the court later or let you pay it later or whatever. They actually had court in session 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And what would happen is, um, when they stopped you for speeding, they would actually literally put you in the car and take you to stand before the judge right there in that moment. So you can imagine, they made a lot of revenue from speeding tickets in that city. And as the story goes, there was a 19-year-old girl who um, had been pulled over for speeding. And so she, you know, got in the back of the car, went and immediately stood before the judge. And she stood before the judge, and the judge says, are you guilty or not guilty? And obviously, she had been sighted with a radar. She, she was speeding. So she said, guilty. And so he slammed the gavel down, and he said, indeed, guilty. Bang. Your payment is $100. She didn't have $100. And so the judge takes off his judge's robe, lays it across the seat, comes down off of the bench and stands beside this young girl. And as he stands beside this young girl, he takes out his wallet and he takes out a hundred dollar bill and he pays the penalty for her. See, the story goes, the judge was a judge, but he was also this girl's father. And so in that moment, what he did is he put down his judge's robe and he came and stood beside her because he was a good judge. The penalty for that offense must be paid, but also because he was a loving father, he came down and stood beside her as her father and paid the penalty for her. Do you see that? And so what the Bible is saying, what this text is pointing us to is that God is our good judge and we stand before him guilty as charged. All of Romans one through three, and really all of Romans <laughs> points us to that idea. Guilty as charged. But Jesus comes down and as John 1:14 says, wrapped himself in flesh and dwelt among us. I love the uh, one of the translations that says he wrapped himself in flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I love that so much. Jesus came down, wrapped himself in flesh, and instead of standing before us as judge, he stood beside us as savior. And on the cross, he was paying the penalty for our sin that we could not pay. He was our propitiation. He was a payment that satisfies. See, that's what propitiation is. Um, one pastor said it this way. He said, imagine you're standing before a dam that is a thousand miles wide and a thousand miles high. And in an instant, the dam breaks and the torrent of water is rushing toward you. And you're about to be consumed by the water. And just when you're going to be consumed by the water, the ground opens up and the torrent of water goes down into the ground and is swallowed up by the ground so that not even a drop of that water touches you. You see, what propitiation says is that in Jesus, on the cross, he was taking the cup of God's wrath and he was drinking it down to the last drop. And on the cross, he slammed it on the cross and said, it is finished not his life. He wasn't talking about his life that was finished. He was talking about the payment that needed to be paid. The payment for our sin was finished. He was a payment that satisfied. He was a propitiation. You see that? So if you get this, this has incredible implications in your life, because what we think is that Jesus is just kind of looking down on us. And and I know if you're anything like me, you think this a lot. He's just kind of looking down on you and he's just kind of perpetually unsatisfied with you. Right? Like, here's what I mean. Um, So I get my son Brady, who's 10, ready to go to school in the mornings. And um, so the other morning I'm getting Brady ready to go to school. And he's kind of at that age where he thinks if clothes match, that they can't be complementary colors. That they all have to be the exact same color, right? And so, um, so he comes downstairs and he's wearing a blue shirt, blue shorts, blue socks pulled all the way up to the knees with his blue basketball shoes. He looks like the daggone Blue Man Group coming down, getting ready to go to school, like blue head to toe. This guy, and it's like Brady Bud, that, and it's not like all the same color blue. It's like different shades, you know. And so it's like that just looks terrible, you know. And so I said to Brady, and by the way, so I, I get down and I said, but that doesn't match. And he says, okay, dad. And when he says, okay, he's like right in front of me. I, I've got this whole dragon breath thing going on with it. Like, I'm like, Brady, you didn't brush your teeth today, did you? And he's like, no, I didn't. And I'm like, oh my God, know, I know that. And so I said, Brady, here's what I need you to do. Go back upstairs, brush your teeth, change your shirt, leave the shirt on, leave the socks pulled up to your knees, the shoes, change your shorts, brush your teeth, come back downstairs. So like 15 minutes later, Brady's nowhere to be found. Like I know it doesn't take that long to put on the gray shorts that I saw on the floor of his room, brush his teeth and come back downstairs. So I go up there, there's Brady, pantsless, looking like Porky Pig up there with a shirt, no pants, standing in this room. Some of y'all get that in a minute. And uh, And he's playing Xbox what are you doing, Brady? Come on! And uh, he looked at me. And he's like, "Oh, sorry, Dad, I forgot." And I'm like, "Brady, seriously, man, we gotta go, you know." And I got this this look right here. Come on, man, we gotta go. Hurry, right? And that's exactly the way some of you think God thinks about you. They're like, God has given you instructions, the Great Commission, or you know, f- fill in the gap, the, the blank, what, whatever the instructions are, right? And that God goes away somewhere, and he comes back, and there we are, not following his instructions, standing there in our watty-totties playing Xbox, going, what, what, right? And God's going, come on, man, get it together, right? We think that's what God thinks about us, that he's just sort of somehow perpetually unsatisfied. But what the Bible teaches, what propitiation says, is that if Jesus is the payment that satisfies the complete 100% all-satisfying payment that God can never be unsatisfied with you. So take that load off of yourself, man. That's why Paul would say in Galatians 5, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So don't enter again into the yoke of slavery. Take that yoke off of yourself. Live in the freedom that propitiation, the all-satisfying payment, gives to you. um, my dad used to take me hunting when I was a kid. I used to love it so much. Like those are my favorite ways to spend weekends. My dad take me hunting and we did all kinds of, uh, a different hunting, but my favorite was quail hunting. Like I'm a little ADD, I think never been diagnosed, but I think I am. And uh, I definitely have so much energy that I can't sit still for very long. So I detest deer hunting. Can I get an amen from anybody in the house? Like I can't sit there for five hours silently in a tree. It's bad news for me. All right. And so I, lo- I loved quail hunting, though, because you can walk around, you can shoot the breeze, you can talk, hang out, and, uh, and watch the dogs do their thing, you know, and then they point a quail, and you go and you, you know, rustle them up, and then you shoot them. That's, that's what you do. And so it was, the most fun thing was just hanging out with my dad, seeing the dogs do their thing, and, you know, seeing the morning come alive. I used to love it so much. And before you would go out on those hunts, you would kind of stand around at the truck, you know, drink your coffee with all the other hunters, and, um, and, and shoot the breeze and, you know, exaggerate stories. And, and, and then you'd take off and and go, you know, do your hunt. And, uh, one time I heard this story about these two hunters, um, who were out in a field and they were standing in the field and they looked in the distance and they see smoke. I mean, oh man, it's a, it's a campfire from some hunters who'd made camp out there somewhere. And they just kind of keep on doing their thing. And they realize, man, no, that that's not a campfire. Like that, that's a, that's a fire. They get close and they realize, man, that's like a forest fire and and it's coming our way. And they realize that the forest fire is coming their way at a rate that's so fast, that's faster than they can get back to the car. And so they think, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? We're going to be swallowed up by the fire. What are we going to do? And just at that moment, one of the hunters takes out a lighter and he reaches down and he lights the, the dry grass that's just around them. See, because that hunter knew this, that hunter knew that that if they stepped into the place where the fire had already been satisfied, they would be safe from the fire, and the fire would pass by. You see, the, the, the already burned over place was the place that they would be safe. Guys, that's what propitiation teaches. That the cross is the already burned over place. And though God is just, and God is loving, and he is is good, he's made a way through the cross to let the wrath of his judgment pass on by. The cross is the already burned over place. And what this text has just told us is that you can receive Christ into your life by faith, as you step into the already burned over place to accept Christ and allow his wrath to pass over you, all you do is by faith step into the already burned over place and the reality of what propitiation says for you, that God's wrath has already been completely, 100% satisfied. And so some of you are here today, man, and you just think, I just can't do enough to earn God's favor. And what Paul has just told us is that you're right. (laughs) You can't. You're under the control of sin. And you need to, by faith, step into what Jesus has done for you. You need to step into the already burned over place. And so what I want to do, Bridge family, is I want to pray that into us right now. And I want to, as I pray, give you an opportunity to, by faith, step into Christ. All right? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you are an all-satisfying payment. You're our propitiation. And it's by your propitiation, your payment, that we can be set free from what enslaves us. And right now in this moment, I know that there are men and women, boys and girls in this room who need to step into that by faith. So Bridge family, if that's you and you need to step into that by faith, what I want to ask you to do is I want to ask you to simply pray a prayer just in the quietness of your heart, something like this right here. Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that there is nothing I can do in my own power to satisfy your wrath. But I know that Jesus has come to make a way to remove me from the slavery of sin. And so Jesus... I step into that through faith today. I trust you with my life, with my hopes, with my dreams. Jesus, I step into the already burned over place. Thank you. So Father God, thank you so much for men and women in this room who just prayed that prayer and who you raised from death to life in you. God, thank you for men and women in this room who you've set free from the shackles of sin even now. Thank you that because of the cross, you are the already burned over place. We trust you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.